Yes, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And if you're using a pew Bible, I don't know what page that is, but it's the first page of the New Testament. So uh, that should be fairly easy to find. Going to read this entire chapter. Pray for me as I do, as it's a genealogy with a bunch of names that I don't know how to pronounce any more than you do. But we're going to try. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, that is, of Mary, Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, may it be that You will honor Your Word among us and within us today by the power of Your Spirit making it real and convincing us that it is true that we might find life in Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we are beginning today a series of messages through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The Gospels hold, or at least should hold, a very special place in our hearts as Christians. It's not because the Gospels are more Holy Spirit-inspired than any other part of Scripture, for that is not true. All Scripture is inspired by God. But the Gospels, in the Gospels, we do see most vividly and most clearly in high-definition, living color, the person of Jesus Christ, who reveals God to us in a human body. I think we spend, as Christians, far too little time in the Gospels, and as a result of that are too little aware of and affected by who Jesus is. J.C. Ryle was an author back in the 1800s, and, and he wrote this, it would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt all Scripture is profitable. It is not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another. But I think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles or the letters if they knew a little more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now why do I say this? I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It is better to be acquainted with Christ Himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification, for they are all matters pertaining to the King. But it is far better to be familiar with Jesus Himself, to see the King's own face and to behold His beauty. This is one secret of eminent holiness. He that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man must be constantly studying Christ Himself. Now the Gospels were written to make us acquainted with Christ. The Holy Ghost has told us the story of His life and death, His sayings and His doings four times over. Four different inspired hands have drawn the picture of the Savior. His ways, His manners, His feelings, His wisdom, His grace, His patience, His love, His power are graciously unfolded to us by four different witnesses. Ought not the sheep to be familiar with the shepherd? Ought not the patient to be familiar with the physician? Ought not the bride to be familiar with the bridegroom? Ought not the sinner to be familiar with the Savior? Beyond doubt, it ought to be so. 
The Gospels were written to make men familiar with Christ. And therefore, I wish men and women and young people and children to study the Gospels. Surely, we cannot know this Christ too well. Surely, there is not a word, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought in the record of His life which ought not to be precious to us. We should labor to be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. My friends, as we study Matthew over these next several months, let us, let us labor to become more and more familiar with every line written about Jesus so that we might know Him and in knowing Him might know God. For Jesus said, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. What does that mean? That means that if you want to know God, and if you, if you want to gaze into the face of God, and if you want to answer the age-old question, who is God and what is God like? Here is what you do. You need to look at and study Jesus. You have to study His life and His love. You have to study His words and His works, His miracles, His mercies, His rebukes, His rewards, His relationships, His responses, His lordship, His law, His names, His titles, His compassion, His weeping, His sacrifice, His sorrows, His dereliction on the cross, His dying. You need to study the bloodied cross, the, the nail-pierced hands, the thorn brow, the spear-stabbed side, and you need to study the empty tomb, and you need to study the ascension of Christ, and in gazing into all of that, more and more, day after day, you will see the face of God. You will see who God is. And if that isn't reason enough to study the Gospels, we can and in fact need to take it one step further we should study the Gospels. We should study the life and words of Jesus so that we will become, so that we will become, and so that we will make disciples. We need to study the Gospels, the life and words of Jesus, so that we will become disciples, followers of Jesus, and can make others into followers of Jesus as well. That's really why Matthew wrote this Gospel. If you go all the way to the end of Matthew, to chapter 28, we get a great big hint as to why Matthew wrote this Gospel. Many of you will be familiar. Matthew 28 and verse 18 Jesus, after He has died, after He was raised, just before He returns to heaven, says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Matthew heard these words from Jesus just before Jesus returned to heaven. Jesus said to Matthew and the other disciples and to the church, go make disciples and teach them. So one of the ways Matthew carried that out was writing the Gospel of Matthew. This is 
His attempt to teach us what Jesus said and what Jesus commanded. And His goal in that is to make disciples so that we would become followers of Christ. And indeed, if you, if you read through Matthew carefully, and by the way, I would encourage you now in these coming weeks, read the book of Matthew as often as you can. Just read it repeatedly. Just get familiar with it. And, and as you do, you're going to notice that time and again, Matthew quotes Jesus as Jesus commands us to follow Him. So we have in Matthew 4, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 8, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. Matthew 9, to Matthew himself who was a thieving tax collector. Jesus walked up to Matthew and says, follow me. Matthew 10, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Matthew 19, if you would be perfect or complete, go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. The book of Matthew is a call to follow Jesus. To become disciples. And so let me, let me summarize chapter 1. And in a sense, it's, a, it's an introduction to our whole series through the Gospel of Matthew. Here's, here's what's happening. Chapter 1 is, I'm calling the message, the coming of the King. The coming of the King. And, and here's the invitation that we all need to hear as we think about this. We should all follow King Jesus. We should all follow King Jesus. Why? Because He is a friend of sinners, a priest for sinners, and a comforter with sinners. We should follow King Jesus because he is a friend of sinners, a priest for sinners, and a comforter with sinners. We should follow King Jesus. I don't know about you. I think I do know about you. Uh, but I won't, I won't be dogmatic on this. But I'm pretty sure that you, like me, long for a world, long for a day when we finally meet a king, when we finally meet a ruler, when we finally meet a president that we can look to and say he is a good king. We long for a world in which there will be a ruler worth honoring. We long for it. Do you realize that right now in this world there are at least 22 active military conflicts going on. At least 22 active wars are happening in the world right now. That means that at least 44 kings and rulers and nations are fighting each other to the death for their own agenda. We need a new king. We need a different king. And when we find this king, we should follow him. Matthew says, King Jesus is the king you're looking for. We should follow King Jesus because he is a friend of sinners, a priest for sinners, and a comforter with sinners. Let me unpack that a little bit. There's a sense in which 
Following is what faith does. What does it, what does it mean to follow Christ? What well, means to follow His way and trust in His way of salvation and, and mercy through His cross? It means to follow His Word, to walk in faithfulness, following His Word, to follow His way, His walk, His, his life, His example. You see, Christians are by definition followers. We have a, we have a new leader. We, we're, we have a new direction. It's the Jesus direction. It's the Jesus way, the Jesus path, the Jesus walk. We're following Him. I said in my summary, we should follow King Jesus. King Jesus. Why do I say that based on chapter 1? Well, I say it because the main point of this genealogy here is to establish that Jesus descends from a royal line. He descends from the line of David. That's why we read in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That was an official title for uh, the, a son, a descendant of David, whom God said would be put on the throne and would reign on that throne forever and ever and ever. And for hundreds and thousands of years, the, the ancient Hebrew people were looking for this king, looking for this, this son of David. And now Matthew is telling us, by the Spirit of God, that that Son of David has come. That that King has arrived and and He is called Christ in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Or down in verse 16, Jesus was born who is called Christ. Christ. That word means anointed one. He, and, and sometimes it refers to anointed as a prophet, anointed as a priest. But in this context and throughout Matthew, the emphasis is anointed as a king. And Christ is a, is a title for Jesus. It's not really His name. Uh, it is a title. It's a, it's a ruling title. It's very similar to Caesar. Uh, Julius Caesar. Caesar Originally, for Julius, was actually his last name. But, over time, it became a title. So that those who followed Julius took the name Caesar as the title. It came to symbolize authority, the king, the emperor. The, so you had Caesar Augustus and Tiberius Caesar and Claudius Caesar. And, and so Caesar becomes a title, not a name. And the other name, you know, Tiberius is the name. Caesar is the title. Jesus is the name. Christ is the title. He is the anointed one. He is the king. And this is, this is a major theme of the Gospel of Matthew. There are more than 80 times in Matthew where the kingship and the kingdom of God are mentioned. So just know this up front. This is going to be a series about King Jesus. This is going to be a, a series about the Christ, the one who is anointed by God and sits upon the throne. And, and, and know this up front that what this means is we're going to be studying the kingdom of God. We're going to be studying the fact that God is King. And in Jesus Christ, He is ruling this world. This world, has been there's been a usurper. There has been a 
cosmic fraud who has, who has kind of taken over things here on planet Earth. His name is Satan. He has, he is, he has robbed, tried to rob God of His throne and he has inserted himself into human history and he rules over many hearts and rules over many places and many lives. And now the King has come. Now the Son of God has arrived. Now the Son of David has arrived. And this is the Kingdom of God breaking in. This is, this is the Kingdom of God coming back and, and it's the King coming back to take what belongs to Him. We're going to see how Satan tries to undermine that in all kinds of ways. But the King is the King. And the King is on His throne. And the, the Kingdom of God, we're going to see, has come and is still coming. It is here now, and yet it is going to continue to increase and abound until the day comes when it lasts forever. And so we pray, Thy kingdom come. The kingdom has come in Christ. The kingdom is coming through Christ and through the church. And folks, this is immensely comforting. You know what it means? It means that history and life in this world are actually going somewhere. You, you can think of human history and human experience either as a circle and a vicious cycle, or you can think of it as a straight line. Many times aren't we tempted to think as we look around us, nothing ever changes. It just goes around and around and around and around. But the doctrine of the kingdom of God tells us, oh no, no, things are changing. The king has come, and the king is on his throne. And the king will reign until every enemy has made his footstool. The king is the king. And that means things are moving forward. Oh yeah, there'll be things that happen that seem like, okay, I don't know how that fits into God's kingdom, but you need to understand this. We need to understand this. The king is on his throne. The king has come. And the king is reigning and the king is ruling. And he will keep on ruling and reigning. And we, we should follow King Jesus. And we should follow him because he is a friend of sinners. In chapter 11, he's act, Jesus is actually called a friend of sinners. But we see it in very remarkable ways right here in chapter 1. The eternal Son of God who became the Son of David had a, had a family tree. That all by itself ought to kind of just make us say, wow. <laughs> wow. He was willing to have a family tree. He was willing to have actual human ancestors. And, and folks, it's a pretty ugly tree. This is a family tree that, well, it's not pretty to look at. You know, I, I was thinking of it like this. Imagine, imagine this family tree as a a multi-generational portrait or picture. And so all the people who are listed in this genealogy are in this picture. And you have, you have Mary holding Jesus in her arms in the center of this picture. And then standing all around Mary, well, you have people like David, who was an adulterer, who cheated on his wife and stole another man's wife, Bathsheba, 
the wife of Uriah the Hittite, it says. So you have a, an adulterer and an adulteress standing in this picture. And then you have Rahab mentioned, who we know was a harlot who came to faith in Jesus. And then you have Jacob mentioned, who was a manipulator and a deceiver. And then you have Tamar and Ruth, who were both non-Jewish immigrants and refugees. And then you have Solomon, who was the womanizer, and Rehoboam, who was a divisive ruler and tyrant. And you have Ahaz, the idolater, and Manasseh, the child killer. And you have all of these people standing in this picture and you realize that that little infant Jesus, that one in Mary's arms, has a family line, has a family tree that most would hang their heads over, but Jesus gladly owns it as His own. He gladly owns it as His own. The Holy Spirit didn't have to inspire Matthew to include the names of these women, most Ancient genealogies didn't include women, but you know, there's, there's Rahab, a harlot. There's Bathsheba, an adulteress. There's Ruth, who was a non-Jew. And, and there was Tamar, who faked being a prostitute so that she could get pregnant. And, and they're all listed. They're all listed. What does it mean? It means that Jesus is a friend of sinners. It means that Jesus welcomes sinners. Craig Bloomberg writes, already here in the genealogy, Jesus is presented as the one who will ignore human labels of legitimacy and illegitimacy to offer His gospel of salvation to all, including the most despised and outcast of society. King Jesus is a friend of sinners. King Jesus didn't hobnob with the powerful or the perfect or the righteous or the holy or the purebred. He befriended sinners. He ate with sinners. He drank with sinners. He gladly owned sinners as His ancestors. This is who He is. This is what He came to do. He came, He says in chapter 9, to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, right from the start, as we start our series, here, if, if Jesus is the face of God, if, if anyone who sees Me has seen the Father, what does this tell us about the Father? What does this tell us about God? It tells us that God is a friend of sinners. It tells us that God loves, He loves the guilty. That, that just shatters all of our religious preconceptions. We think He loves the holy. He loves the guilty. He loves sinners. And He welcomes all. He invites the poor in spirit. He invites those who mourn to come freely to Him. And if you came in here this afternoon feeling guilty, feeling that you're not good enough or, because you're, or that you're too dirty or ashamed or unclean to follow Jesus, you need to know, my friend, that you are just the kind of person Jesus came to save. If you are feeling filthy, if you are feeling dirty, if you are feeling 
unclean, if you are feeling guilty down into the marrow of your bones, down into the very core of your being, you just feel dirty through and through, you're the one Jesus came for. The King is a friend of sinners. We who are believers, we have as our church mission statement, worshiping God and welcoming all with gospel truth and neighbor love. We ought to be those who are like Jesus and like the Father, welcoming all, not in a condescending, patronizing way like, like you know, oh yeah, you're a lonely sinner. Come on in, we'll help you. No, it's more like we're the all. We're the sinners. We're the guilty. We're the dirty. Come on in and join the dirty. Come on in, join the sinners because we have a king. We have a king who loves sinners. Who loves sinners. We should follow King Jesus because He is a friend of sinners and a priest for sinners. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call His name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. This King is not only the one who rules, he's the one who saves. Now, how does, how does he save? Well, over in chapter 20, I think it is, he says, I, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve. And to do what? To give my life a ransom for many. That's what a priest does. A priest offers a sacrifice to God for the atonement of sin. What you and I, every one of us here needs to understand is that if we are going to have any kind of acceptance with God, if we are going to have any kind of peace with God, if we're going to have a relationship with God, we need to bring a sacrifice that's acceptable to God to atone for our sins. Because God is holy and can't accept us without a punishment paid for the sins that we have committed. So the reality is you either pay that punishment or somebody else pays it in your place. You either are sacrificed forever in judgment or you have a priest who offers a sacrifice. That's what this is talking about. He will save His people from their sins. This king, this king, about 30 years later, bent down and picked up a cross. This king openly mocked later in his life a a crown of thorns, a crown of thorns, mocking him as a king. A crown of thorns on his brow picks up a wooden cross, carries it, carries it to a rugged hill just outside of Jerusalem and willingly lays himself down on that cross and in effect, says to those around him, you can put me to death, but understand that I am giving my life. I am giving my life as a ransom for many. I am giving my life as a sacrifice for sin. I am not only King Jesus, I am High Priest Jesus. I am the one offering a sacrifice. We should follow King Jesus because He is a friend of sinners and a priest for sinners. And finally, 
a comforter with sinners. A comforter with sinners. Notice verse 22. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. Matthew here is quoting uh, the prophet Isaiah, the very same prophet who wrote in Isaiah 41, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Later, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. So this, this king is a friend of sinners. He is a priest for sinners. And he is a comforter with sinners. Sinners, And we've already seen it, and it's remarkable. Matthew 1, His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 28, very last words of the Gospel are what? And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Gospel begins and it ends with this promise of comfort. That Jesus, our King, will be with us. He is a king, not in some far off place. He is a king right here. He is a king. Though he is high and exalted and full of power and authority, he is a king who lives right next door. He is a king who lives right inside. He is a king who is with us. Always with us. Unfailingly with us. No matter who we are or where we are or what we're facing or how we are doing, he is here in and through it all. He is a King who never leaves us, who never abandons us, who never fails us. We should follow King Jesus because He is a friend of sinners, a priest for sinners, and a comforter with sinners. If you're here today, and they're finding that it's very, very hard to follow King Jesus in this sinful world, then understand this, that King Jesus is your Emmanuel. He is with you. If you feel like your path is lonely, King Jesus is with you. If you are tired of the journey, King Jesus is with you. If you're a mom and you're feeling overwhelmed in the raising of your children, King Jesus is with you. If you're a husband and a father who is working, it seems at times, against all odds to provide for and to be a faithful leader to your home, please know this. King Jesus is with you. If you long for a better world, long for a world in which justice and peace prevail, understand, until that world comes, King Jesus is with you. King Jesus is with you. And if you face cancer, or divorce, or bereavement, or job loss, or injustice, or danger, or peril, or if you look at the mission of the Gospel and you're responsibility to be a witness for Christ in this world and it all just seems so much bigger and harder than you can do. Just know this. King Jesus is with you.
I will never leave you or forsake you, says the Lord. We should follow King Jesus because he is a friend of sinners, a priest for sinners, and a comforter with sinners. Later on in the Gospel, Jesus one time talks to his disciples and he asks the question, who, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? The disciples said, well, some of them are saying you're Elijah, some of a prophet, some this, some that. And then Jesus says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Friends, that's the most important question you'll ever be asked. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Peter often got it wrong, but this time got it right. He said, you are the Christ, the anointed king. You are King Jesus. You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus blessed him for his answer. You need to answer that question, friends. Who do you say Jesus is? He is the King. And he must be your King. You must bow your knee to the King. You must bow your heart and your head before the throne. You he must be your king if you would have him to be your friend. If you would have him to be your priest. If you would have him to be your comforter. He must be your king. And if, you, if you're a Christian here already and, and uh, you've already put your faith and trust in Christ, can I, can I just encourage you to to consider this, that this is part of your identity. Who, who is Tim Shorey? I'm a child of the King. I am a follower of the King. It's a good way to wake up in the morning. You look in the mirror. You know, wipe it off. You look. Say, who is that person? A follower of the King. King Jesus is my king. King Jesus is my Lord. King Jesus is my ruler. King Jesus rules my life. My, my heart belongs to him. My desires, my dreams, my aspirations, my cravings, my longings, my choices, my words, my attitudes, my mission and purpose in life, they all belong to him. He is King Jesus. And I'm a child of the king. If you've never bowed your head to Christ, do it right now. You can do it in your own heart. Just say, be my king, Lord Jesus. Be my king. Be my priest. Be my friend. Be my king. Save me. Make me your own. And if you're a Christian, can I just encourage you every morning of your life, wake up and make one of the first things you do be a reminder to yourself before God that you're a child of the king. So that all the responsibilities and amazing promises that are attached to that will be yours as you live out your life in the kingdom of God. Let's pray.
Lord, would you make these things real and precious to us. Make Jesus precious to us. Lord, we, we want to love the King. We want to live for the King. Give us grace, O oh Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.